Good morning, church. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter number 3. Philippians 3. We'll look together this morning at verses 12 through 21, although I'd like to go back to verses 7 through 11 and to pick up one unanswered issue from last Sunday's sermon. Philippians chapter 3, our reading will begin in verse 7, but our primary focus will be on verses 12 through 21. If you found your way there, I'd like to invite you to join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's holy word. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. The Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. The Bible says, But everything that was a gain to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them filth so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I've already reached the goal or am already fully mature, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, all who are mature should think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers, and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For I've often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. They're focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. And the people of God said, Amen, and you may be seated. First of all, what a beautiful passage of Scripture, right? We looked last week at verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 3, and as I said a moment ago, I want us to revisit verses 7 through 11. Paul says in verse 7, everything that was gained to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. Some translations will render the language of gaining and losing as advantage and disadvantage. We were discussing that some this week, and I think that's helpful language. Paul says, the circumstances of my, of my life that I once understood as, as advantages to me, I now understand to be disadvantages. My pursuit of righteousness according to the law, my heritage, the place of my birth, all of those things about my background that made me feel as though I enjoyed the favor with God, I believed those things to be advantages. In reality, they were disadvantages to me in coming to know Jesus Christ. My moral bankruptcy... My emptiness, 
my ignorance of the truth of the gospel, those were once considered to be disadvantages, but coming to Jesus on those terms has become for me an advantage. I often say to people, it's easier to reach the down and out than it is the up and out. The creature comforts the advantages of the life that we enjoy as citizens in America become disadvantages to us and that they keep us in this state of comfort. We're kept from the uneasiness of acknowledging what we really are as morally bankrupt and broken and separated from God. Often those advantages can be obstacles to our coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, what I once counted as an advantage, I've now come to understand as a disadvantage. It's all loss. Indeed, it's all filth in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. And then he says something in verses 10 and 11. We talked about 10, but really 11 is where the unresolved issue is. In verse 10, he says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I'll somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Now here's the deal, right? Paul, Paul is speaking as though there's something undone about his salvation, something contingent, something yet to be fulfilled, something still unsettled. This is Paul speaking, right? Paul of the Damascus Road conversion. Paul of 13 New Testament letters. Paul of three missionary journeys. Paul of church plants all over the civilized world. This is Paul deeply sold out to Jesus. Converted in every sense of the word. And yet he speaks here in verse 11 as though there's something that yet hangs in the balance. Assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. I'm going to give you the secret in my estimation of settling virtually all challenging theological issues for those of you who are deeply interested in theology. Learn to live with the unresolved tensions that exist at a number of points in the Bible. The Christian faith is paradoxical. There are truths that seem to be contradictory but actually are consistent, quite consistent with one another within the context of the gospel. Think, think for a moment about the most basic of doctrines, that God exists in three persons and yet is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That in and of itself is paradoxical. We are saved by grace through a faith that is given by God, and yet we are called upon to respond affirmatively to the gospel. That is paradoxical. We are declared righteous by the Father, yet we continue to wrestle with sin. We have become a new creation in Christ, and yet we continue to struggle with the sin nature of the old creation. We have been saved by faith, and yet we are being saved by the continuing work of Jesus Christ in our life. The kingdom of God has come, and the kingdom of God is coming. We live in this world, and we are to pursue the peace and prosperity of Babylon, yet our citizenship is in yet an unseen kingdom. This is the Christian faith. What's up is down, and what's down is up. This is who we are as pilgrims in this existence. Now, the Apostle Paul says, my salvation is finished, but I'm working here on the assumption that I attain to the resurrection from the dead. In other words, Paul says, I'm working on the assumption that I will finish my race in such a way th that my life affirms my confession that Jesus is Lord. 
That my life would validate the sincerity of my heart when I say that Jesus is the treasure of my heart. Now, further explanation is given for us in verses 12 through 21. In fact, what I want you to see in these verses is what it is that we must do if we are to attain to the resurrection from among the dead. If we're going to labor, if we're going to strive, that our life would be an affirmation of the confession of our mouth as Christian folk. These are things that must be in place. This is what we do. The first of these is pursuing the prize. Look to verse number 12. Paul says, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already fully mature, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Now here is the paradox that I'm speaking of. Paul says, it's not that I've already attained or achieved this goal. I'm not fully mature, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by it. Paul is saying, I am straining, striving, laboring to take hold of what has already taken hold of me. This is the Christian life, right? Laboring and striving and straining to take hold of what has already taken hold of us. We were at the beach a couple of weeks ago, which probably makes us bad people for some of you, and I'm <laughs> deeply sorry for that, but we were there, and it was, it was the baby's first beach trip, or big beach, where there were big waves, right? We've been to the Mississippi coast, but we were, we were at Gulf Shores, and the waves were bigger, and so we go wade out into the water holding him, you know. And you get past the first sandbar and the waves get a little bit bigger. And the farther out in the water you get, the bigger the waves are and the tighter he would, he would hold on. And he, he would hold on like he was holding on for his life. And the deeper his little fingers would get in my neck and back, he was holding on tight. But the reality is it was not the strength of that small child that kept him safe in the waves. It was the arms of a father concerned for his well-being. This is the picture the Apostle Paul paints in our passage. He says, I am laboring to take hold of the one who has taken hold of me. And this is how right-headed biblical thinking people think about the doctrine of eternal security. The security of our salvation, by the way. We are laboring with our life, with all of our strength and might to take hold of the one who has irreversibly in his power and might taken hold of us. And nothing can beset that. Nothing can snatch you from the hand of the Father who has loved you deeply through Jesus Christ. Do you see the balance that Paul strikes in his life? He said already in Philippians, what God has begun in you, and by implication, what God has begun in me, God will bring to perfection. Not because I'm holding on, but because God is holding on to me. But the love of the Father in taking hold of me has enabled in me and compels me so to hold fast to him. So much so that the goal of my life is to pursue the face of Jesus Christ. Look to verse 13. Paul says, Brothers, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Paul says, The number one goal of my life is to know Jesus, to press 
toward Jesus, to hold fast to the one who's holding fast to me. That's the priority of my life. And brothers and sisters, it ought to be the priority of your life as well. The number one goal for Paul was Jesus. And the number one goal for you and me, bought by the blood of the Lamb, ought to be to see the face of Jesus Christ. It's a constant struggle, right? We have responsibilities and obligations here. We, we have, at times, responsibilities here that, that are a little bit both and, right? We have, we have job responsibilities and we have spiritual responsibilities. Among our spiritual responsibilities are to provide for those within our care to work with our hands. That's a spiritual responsibility. And, and yet this world has a gravitational pull on our hearts in more ways than one. And every day is a battle at striking the balance between meeting the earthly responsibilities that we bear and doing that within the context of our concern that we attain to the resurrection from the dead. There are no black and white answers. There, there is but to walk in the Spirit of God, to be discerning and to be wise as best we can under the leadership of God's Holy Spirit and the insight provided in His Word that we would attain to the resurrection from the dead, straining and striving to hold fast to the one who has taken hold of us. But every day's got to be that fight, right? Every day has to be that wrestling match between the Spirit and the flesh because we are so easily distracted. And our goals so quickly become worldly. We so quickly forget about what awaits us in heaven, in Jesus Christ. Every day has to be that spiritual battle. Or you know what happens, right? You look up and months and sometimes even years have passed and you've drifted so you've almost forgotten about what awaits us in heaven. Your concerns for the things of Jesus have so much been overwhelmed and overcome by earthly concerns, you've all but forgotten who he is. Brothers and sisters, make the goal of your life to see the face of Jesus and never let yourself forget to keep the main thing, the main thing. Paul says, the goal of my life is pursuing the prize, and pursuing the prize must always be the goal of the life of every believer. Paul says the first thing that you must do in order to attain to the resurrection from the dead is pursue the prize. The second thing you must do is grow in grace. Look to verse number 15. Therefore, all who are mature should think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. It's a fairly common thing to get into gospel conversations with people, especially in the Bible Belt South, and to hear people say, I understand or affirm your belief in the existence of God. I just don't understand all of the fanaticism. In other words, what, what it boils down to is I would like the benefits of this faith that you talk about without Jesus imposing on my personal liberties. That's what that ultimately boils down to. How in the world can it be that we can truly come to understand that the God who made the heavens and the earth, hung the earth on its axis and flung the stars in the sky, has loved us so much that he would send his son into this world, that he would live without sin, that he would die as our substitute, that Jesus would be treated as though he had committed our sin so that the Father might justifiably treat us as though we had committed the righteousness of Jesus. 
And in spite of his death for our crimes, he would be raised again the third day. How is it reasonable that we could come to such a realization and be anything less than completely sold out to the person and work of Jesus Christ? Paul says in verse 15, all who are mature should think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will... In other words, he says, this is how you ought to think, and if you don't, God will straighten you out. (laughs) He says in verse 16, in any case, we should live up to what truth we have attained. That's why I've referred to this as growing in grace. Growing in grace is about living up to the truth we have attained. The secret to the Christian life is not the ability to explain or even understand the symbols and the imageries of the book of Revelation. The secret to the Christian life is to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the fascinating thing about that is that as we labor to love God and love neighbor, God is often pleased to open the truth of his word to us to reveal himself in remarkable ways, even in places that may have been confusing or confounding for us at some point in the past. Live up to the truth that you have attained. In the early days of my Christian life, I say this all the time, as an, and I hope this serves as an encouragement to you. When God saved me, I couldn't find the book of Genesis with both hands and a flashlight. I didn't know anything about the Bible. And every day was learning more about the character of God and what God's will for my life personally really looked like. But we really never grow beyond that, right? We, we live up to the truth we've already attained. We strive to meet the obligations and the responsibilities and to revel in the character of God as we know and understand it. That's what growing in grace really ultimately and finally looks like. If you're going to attain to the resurrection from the dead, it's going to be because you have pursued the prize and you are growing in grace. This is Christian sanctification. God is shaping us and molding us and making us over into the image and the likeness of his son. We sort of back away from these first two points. You realize what Paul is saying about his life? He's saying, when God saved me, I changed my goals to the goals of God for me. God's goal in saving you is to bring you into conformity and likeness with the image of his son, to make you like his son, Jesus. And Paul says, when God saved me, I signed on to God's agenda for my life. And I'm making the goal of God for every day of my life my personal goal. I want to join God in this work of sanctifying and consecrating my life that much glory and honor and praise be brought brought to Jesus and to Jesus alone. In verses 17, Paul says, join in imitating me and in other brothers. What he essentially calls us to do is is sort of a next step here, at least the next point in our outline. Not only should we be pursuing the prize, we, we should be growing in grace, and we should be following the faithful. He says in verse 17, join in imitating me, brothers, and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. This is one of the many purposes of God's church for God's people. A landing spot, rest for our soul, encouragement, mutual encouragement to find brothers and sisters who are in the same station in life or maybe they've been through the things that we've been through and they can provide for us accountability and encouragement and even insight into the gospel and its implications 
for our life. Find faithful brothers that you can pattern your life after. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. I've stared with a blank look at that verse a lot of days and wondered if it's advisable for us to offer such counsel to those around us. And more times than not, coming to the conclusion that the answer to that question is no. But only because we're failing to live up to the truth we have already attained. Paul's not suggesting in 1 Corinthians 11 or even in this passage that he has it all worked out. He's admitted as, mu admitted as much already in the text. It's not that I am fully mature or have already reached the prize or have already attained the finished product here. But I'm laboring and striving and straining toward this goal. We're all at different places, right? All of us at a different place in our journey with Jesus. All of us at a different place in our life. All of us with different hang-ups and habits and struggles and sins and temptations and difficulties in our life. But in so much as we are collectively pressing toward the call, the upward prize that is in Jesus Christ, that's an example that's worthy of imitating, right? Paul says, find some faithful brothers. You need some faithful brothers in your life. Our bent in the church for the past 50 years or so has been toward a lecture-type experience where we're attaining all of this information, and there's not a thing in the world wrong with attaining information, especially when it comes to theological information. But we have used that to curb a guilty conscience that knows full well that there are some things that are better learned in the laboratory of life than they are in the lecture hall. And at some point, at some point, some of you need to hear this today, at some point, you're going to have to come away from your study desk and walk into the world for the glory of Jesus Christ. So some of you have attained all the truth in the world. Libraries could not contain the truth that you've attained. And you've yet to exhaust a single drop of sweat of living up to the truth that you've attained. Labor hard under the word of God to know and understand and discern well. But surround yourself with faithful brothers and sisters that can be an example to you as to how to walk in that truth. Brandy and I learned in the early years of our marriage more about marriage and family, how to be a husband, how to be a wife, how to be parents by observing our pastor and his wife than we ever learned in our small group studies. There are some things that are just better learned by observing in others what it looks like to live the gospel out in this situation or what it looks like to honor this particular command given its circumstances. Find faithful brothers and sisters that can walk with you, be an encouragement to you, follow after the faithful. But unfortunately, not every example is a good example. In fact, not every example that says to you it's a good example is a good example. Not every example that we sort of say is a good example is a good example sometimes, right? We make certain discoveries along the way that disappoint and discourage us. Paul warns about such things in verse 18. He says, I've often told you and now say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame. They're focused on earthly things. As you're searching for faithful brothers and sisters to join your life with, and by the way, this is the model for Jesus' ministry, right? There are a few times in the gospel that Jesus stops and he speaks and gives a long discourse. 
Sermon on the Mount, Olivet Discourse, Sermon on the Plains. But most of the time, Jesus is walking along with those 12 disciples and his teaching opportunities present themselves. He's instructing them as to how the gospel has impact on that particular scenario. As you're looking for faithful brothers and sisters, be aware that not every example is a good example. In fact, it's an unfortunate thing, but it's a reality nonetheless. Not every example in the church is a good example. I don't, if you're new to church, we got knuckleheads just like everybody else does. There are enemies of the cross who would sell themselves to you as a good example in whatever area of life that you need to caution yourself against. And Paul provides some description of who they are. Their end is destruction. And no matter how they sell themselves, their end is always the same. It's always destruction. Their God is their stomach. In other words, they're driven about by their lust. Their interest is in serving the passions of the flesh. Their glory is in their shame. What they ought to be ashamed of, they're actually boasting in. If there's anything that's truly changed from this day to generation past, perhaps, it's not that sin is greater. There's nothing new under the sun. It's the same old sin. The difference, perhaps, in our day is that where a former generation at least had the decency to be ashamed of or be secretive about their sinfulness, now we, we boast and celebrate in shame. Their, their, their shame is their glory, the Apostle Paul says, and they're focused on earthly things. Now, Paul draws in verse 20 a contrast between those enemies of the cross and who we are in Jesus. And I have found such incredible encouragement from this verse for, for virtually all of my adult life. I can, I can distinctly remember coming across this verse and, and making this discovery and realizing in full what this verse meant for me. Listen to what Paul says. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know as a believer, your primary citizenship is in heaven? Now, let me encourage you with that truth for just a moment, if I might. We, we, are, we are in the days of a, a, a presidential election. And every presidential election, as you have experienced, if you've lived for any time, is the most important presidential election in the history of presidential elections. Have you experienced that? And virtually everything that you see on the nightly news is gloom and doom. One is a saint, one is a sinner. One is waiting for an opening in the Trinity to open up so he can step in, and the other is straight out of the pit of hell. That's what you can find on the news, and you can pick your poison depending on which news you choose to watch. There's just a boatload of gloom and doom, and, and, and every, 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 each party says if the other wins, that we're, just all going, we're all just going to die. You know, that's the, we're, all, we're, no, we're, we're probably not going to make it. And I just want to say to you this morning, and I hope that you don't find this offensive. I hope that you find this as encouraging, as encouraging as I do. Brothers and sisters, if the United States of America falls tomorrow, the kingdom of God will stand. Amen. Our primary citizenship is in heaven with Jesus. Yes, we are to pursue the peace and the prosperity of Babylon as pilgrims, as strangers, as sojourners. But you can still your beating heart. You can rest from your anxiety. Because no matter what happens on the ballot in November, Jesus will still be the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And there has never been, yes, yes. 
There has never been and there will never be an election in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king. Now I rest in that. That is who we are. So, so come away from the gloom and the doom. And yes, pursue the peace and prosperity of the land, but there can be no mistaking. Our primary citizenship is not here. It is in heaven with Jesus. So Paul says, follow after the faithful. There's a final exhortation in our passage that's just so good. Look at verse 21. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Are you hearing what Paul says? Now remember where we started. We started back with verse 11, right? Where Paul seems to have this uneasy tone. Assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead. It seems so far off. It almost seems distant for Paul, doesn't it? And now, in the close of our text, he speaks with such certainty. He is so firm. And really, the end of our paragraph is verse 1 of chapter 4. Listen again. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So then, my brothers, you're dearly loved and longed for my joy and my crown. In this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. There's certainty, and there's clarity, and there's gospel confidence. Paul's living with gospel confidence in his heart, and you ought to as well. Don't mistake Paul's striving and straining to hold on to that which has taken hold of him for a lack of confidence in the power of the gospel to do precisely what God has promised it would do. Oh, this is another one of those paradoxical things, right? We talked a little bit last week about the difference between striving to obey commandments and striving to know him. Striving to obey commandments will produce in you dryness, barrenness, frustration. It, it'll make you that person who always looks for what's wrong with everyone else on Facebook and drives most folks crazy. That's what that will make you be. But the secret is, the trick is striving to know him will create in you a compulsion to meet the commandment in a way that you would never have the natural ability to do in your own strength, right? So our goal, we're striving to know him, pursuing the prize, as Paul describes in the passage that's before us here. So, on the other hand, gospel confidence is creating in the Apostle Paul this compulsion to serve him faithfully, to hold fast, and to persevere with God. But it never for an instance, instance creates within him this license to sin. Rather, it gives him liberty unto righteousness. And what the New Testament teaches is that apart from Jesus Christ, we are bound to sin, to transgression. You are bent on evil, but there's a freedom, there's a liberty that comes with knowing Jesus Christ. The chains, the bonds are broken, and we have a newfound freedom to serve him faithfully with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. Aren't you glad for that this morning? There, there, there is, they say, in the Alps, a monument to a volunteer who... who climbed the mountain to rescue some stranded climbers. And it, and it just reads, he died climbing. I think that's the goal for the Apostle Paul, to die climbing. And it ought to be the goal for each of us as well. 
Brothers and sisters, run your race well. Pour yourself out in service to the king. Make the goal of your life to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and the beauty of what you've done for us. God, I pray that you'd create in us longing hearts that we would labor to take hold of that which has taken hold of us. I pray, God, that in these next moments, you'd be pleased to reveal yourself to unbelievers. God, those who have perhaps believed on some superficial level, but who've never made a decisive faith commitment to follow after Jesus to become a Christian. God, might today be that day. God, be pleased to save some. I pray for others, Lord, who've believed, who've trusted, maybe even this morning already, but they've never followed through with baptism as a public witness to what you've done in them. God, grant them courage and understanding as to what baptism means and further understanding as to the truth of the gospel. I pray for those who you'd have to be brought into the fellowship of our church. Help us to receive them well, to love and lead, to be that faithful brother who could serve as an example as you'd see fit. And perhaps they might even serve in that capacity themselves. Lord, we pray that as we respond to what we have read of your character, of your will for us through your word, and what we have discerned through the direction of your spirit, Lord, help, help us to actively respond in obedience, and may Jesus be greatly honored as we do. We ask these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. I want to invite you now, if you would, to stand with me. We're going to have a time of commitment, a time of invitation. An invitation time is a time when we do just what the term suggests. We invite you to respond to the preaching of God's Word. Maybe you're here this morning, and as we prayed a moment ago, you, you've always believed in the existence of God, always did. But I was almost 20 years old before I made that decisive faith commitment to turn away from the things of this world and to follow after Jesus. The world would have you to believe that that superficial level of faith is enough to get you through. In fact, most of mankind would desire to believe such a thing. It, it gives us a Jesus that provides for our needs but doesn't impose upon our life. And I, I want to tell you, Jesus is not interested in being a part of your life. Jesus is interested in coming in and completely taking over your life. And if you'd sign on to Jesus' agenda for your life this morning, we invite you to come. Maybe you're here and a believer, but you've never followed through with baptism. Baptism is one of the most exciting ways that you can say publicly what Jesus has done in your heart. Maybe God's called you by conviction to come into the fellowship of our church. We'd love to have you as a part of our faith family. You come. Even today, there's a starting point, new members class that would be offered to you. You could come and be a part of. We could get all of that wrapped up in a single day. How about that? There may be other needs, other concerns. You may have some issues going on within your personal life, within your family, whatever the case would be. If there's any way in this world that we could help or encourage you in your walk with Jesus, the invitation is to come. As we sing together, most importantly, as God's Spirit leads, you boldly answer the call of Christ. Let's sing. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness, watch and pray, find in me thine all in all, Jesus, pay. 
my own Sin had left a crimson stain He washed it white as snow Lord, now indeed I find Thy power and Thine alone Can change the leper's spots And melt the heart of stone Jesus paid it all All to Him I owe Sin had left a crimson stain more information, contact Pastor Kevin. The Women's Ministry will host a new Bible study this fall. This study will be held on Wednesday evenings at 6 p.m. in room 215, beginning with an intro night on August 19th. An online study will be held via Zoom Wednesday mornings at 9.30 a.m. beginning August 26th. Cost for materials is $10 or they may be purchased by the participant. Register at longviewpoint.org or on our Longviewpoint mobile app. Contact Vera Ann Salters for details. That's what's going on at The Point. Let's expand this kingdom across the street and around the world.
For those of you that don't know, almost five years ago, we were approached by the International Mission Board and asked if our church would adopt an unreached area in South Asia, an area where there were not going to be a mission, where there was not going to be a missionary assigned, but if we as a church would adopt that area to pray for it and commit to sending teams. And for the last five years, we've sent almost two or three teams a year to do training and work with national believers there. And God has blessed and allowed us to connect with folks there and to do be a part of training and seeing folks come to faith and be baptized. But I would ask that you continue to pray for the Andaman Islands. Over 400,000 people. If you want to know where the Andaman Islands are, you put your finger on Hernando, Mississippi, and you go to the other side of the planet and put your finger there. That's about where it is. But it's an area of 400,000 folks, many of whom are among the, uh, the most unreached, unaccessible, inaccessible people groups on the planet. And I would ask that you continue to pray, pray, pray. Um, our passports are no good right now, but God doesn't need a passport. He's still at work. There are still national believers there who are seeking to share the gospel with some of those least reached people. So I would ask that you guys continue to pray for God to work mightily in the Andaman Islands. All right, uh, three things just quickly before we dismiss. One, there is a starting point opportunity for you after our service dismisses here. Um, we've got a, a, a smaller group and space for you. So if you're here this morning with interest in coming into the fellowship of our church, starting point is a mandatory class for that process. But you don't have to be ready even to make that leap. If you have questions about the makeup of our church, the doctrines of our church, the structure of our church, we would, uh, we'll give some explanation as to how all of that works and uh, talk through those things in starting point, and we would love to have you. So we'll start within a few minutes of our service dismissing here if you'd like to join us. Otherwise, be in prayer for those who will be coming through our starting point class this afternoon. Um, secondly, I want to give you just a brief uh, update and prayer request for our worship pastor search. Worship pastor searches are challenging. I don't know if y'all knew that or not. But worship pastor searches in the midst of a global pandemic are, well, there's an added level of challenge that goes along with that. I asked a few weeks ago, in fact, a few months ago now, for our prayer team to pray each day at 10.31 a.m. That's for Psalm 103.1, which says, Praise the Lord and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Praise the Lord. It's a psalm of celebration and worship, a sensible connection to make with our worship pastor search. And so our prayer team has been praying at 10.31 a.m. each day. Now, with the pandemic sort of slowing a little bit, or at least we're adjusting to such an extent that this is normal for us now. Uh, we're beginning to make a little headway, a little progress. And I'd like to ask you if for the next few weeks, as important decisions are made, as we seek to be discerning and candidates seek to be discerning about the next steps in this process, that at 1031 you set your clocks on your smartphone devices and remember our worship pastor search in prayer. Your prayers would be greatly appreciated by all involved, I know. Keep praying, and in due time, we'll reap if we don't quit, okay? All right, here's the third thing. We have been planning all summer long. The game plan has been to bring back Wednesday night activities when school starts back. That's still the game plan. The, the difference is the school start back has been moved back. So uh, a week from this Wednesday... Unless school is delayed again, in which case we'll be happy adherence to whatever's handed down, I suppose. 
will delay again. But in, unless something changes a week from this coming Wednesday, Wednesday night activities will start back except for Wednesday night fellowship meal. We're going to hold, we're going to pause that for a little while. And choir practice obviously will, is, is on pause until some things settle down with exposure potential and those sorts of things. So pray, pray. I, I, I know it's crazy to say to to pray, you would think that everyone would, but sometimes we get so fixated on our grumbling and complaining about our circumstances that we forget to pray about them. Pray that God would be pleased to bring relief and lift the virus from our area, that there could be a return to some degree of normalcy in our schools and churches and local businesses, local businesses who've been hurt greatly by all that's happened. Pray that God would be pleased to lift the virus and that he'd be at work through this, that many would come to know him, even in spite of our inability to move about freely and communicate the gospel. As Jason said earlier, with regards to missions, God doesn't need a passport, and God's often pleased to work under strange circumstances to see to it that folks, even in isolation, have brought to their remembrance a, a fitting word, a gospel word that they've heard at some point in their life, and God conditions their heart to trust and believe in Jesus, and it springs forth and brings a, a great, great harvest. So pray to that end as well. Hey, I, 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 was, I was grinning during the invitation thinking of how proud of you I am as a congregation. You know why? This is the end of the third service, and no one has eaten me up about the mask signs. And, uh, and I'm so proud. Did y'all notice the scripture reference? It's Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or complaining. And you have been happy adherents today, and I thank you so much. For, hey, I get it. I get it. But we want to be good neighbors as best we possibly can. So recommending those in, in each of our services were, was the step that we took this week. Th thank you all for being, for, for being like your father. And uh, it's, it's been a good day together. I'd like to keep you and just preach again. Y'all want to start over? Some of y'all don't look so certain about all that. All right, we're going to stand and we're going to be dismissed with prayer. Have a great afternoon. Father, thank you for your kindness toward us. You are a good and faithful God. And so as we dismiss, Lord, I pray that you'd provide us with opportunities to continue our worship by celebrating what you've done for us and what you've promised to do for others by sharing the good news of the gospel with those we come in contact with. And we ask it in Jesus' name.